Thank you, Kendi, and thank you, Eric, and thank you, worship leaders, and welcome, everyone, to Bethany Community Church today on September 13th as we enter into what is, in many ways, a new year every September. Uh, children are going back to school and students are going back to college, though this particular September is a September unlike any other because I know that parents are facing unique challenges related to children at school and university students have many questions about their life and all of us have questions. And so as we enter into this particular September, we do so mindful that this is a time unlike previous years. There is no normal in the moment. We're called to resilience and adaptation. Many of us are weary. And it's in that backdrop that uh, the scripture that was read this morning is so appropriate John 16, 32, where Jesus says this, a time is coming and now is when all of you be scattered each to your own home. Wow, that preaches today because that's exactly where we live. And so I invite you to join me in prayer as we consider this text together. Father, we wanna thank you that we can gather in various places through the technology that is the reality of our moments in history. And we can listen together to your word. I pray, Father, that you would speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit today to the end, that we might become in increasing measure people of hope in the midst of all the uncertainty that is the year 2020. And so speak to us, give us ears to hear what you have to say to us, and hearts to respond, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Every September uh, is, in a sense, a new year for us as a church, and so every September we do a series entitled Gather, Grow, Go, having to do with what we're about as a church. Every year, it's the same theme, but every year we use different texts. And this year, uh, we're using some texts that are the words of Jesus. And today, the words of Jesus, coupled with a text from the book of Hebrews. But these words of Jesus, very important. A time is coming when you'll be scattered. I'd like to begin by reading for you some words from the wife of the man who piloted Flight 93, the flight that went down in Pennsylvania 19 years ago on 9-11, killing all the passengers, but saving uh, yet another disaster as that flight was intended to go into an urban area. This woman, whose husband died, writes this. I think the lesson that sticks most with me is that in the thousands of calls made while waiting to die, in those eerie voicemails of last words left that morning, The thing that sticks with me is this. Not one of them brought up abortion, birth control, gay marriage, Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, liberals, the Second Amendment, transgender rights, public bathrooms, women in combat, stem cell research, Fox News, CNN, paranoid, gossip, conspiracy theories of the moment. None. No. Not a single word. And then these are her words. Not one word like that. Instead... They spoke of love and hope. They told their spouses and children to grieve their impending death and then get busy building a new life, love again. They apologized for words spoken in anger, birthdays missed for work. They regretted the plans put off and the travel not taken. They reached out from within the flames to speak words left unsaid. Their last words, in every case, they spoke love. And then this is what she says. 
Let that be the lesson we never forget. But here's the thing we do forget, especially in times of uncertainty. And that's essentially all we have right now, uncertainty, on every front. Economic uncertainty, vocational uncertainty, health uncertainty, political uncertainty, uh, and gathering uncertainty for us as a church. In other words, uncertainty around when we can gather. How long will it be this way? Uh, Very interesting, in the same chapter from which we read John 16, verse 32, earlier in that chapter, Jesus says this, John 16, 16. He's talking to his disciples, and he says, in a little while, I'm going to go away. And then in a little while, I'm going to return. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It's almost funny because uh, it says then that the disciples were discussing among themselves, what does he mean a little while? Can he not give us a schedule? Can we not know when he's leaving, when he's returning? A little while. And then Jesus says, are you troubled that I use a little while? Rhetorical question. The answer is, yeah, we're troubled. We'd like to know when there's a vaccine. We'd like to know uh, with certainty that our election will go smoothly. We'd like to know that the economy is a V. We'd like to know when children will be back in school and not afraid of bringing a virus home that will kill their grandparents. We'd like to know. And here's the thing, we don't know. And that uncertainty is very difficult. So in times of uncertainty, one of the questions on the table is this, what can we know? There's a lot that I can't control. There's a lot I don't know. What can I know? What can I do? And that's what I'd like to address this morning or today, depending on when you're watching. What can we know with certainty? We know two things with certainty. Number one, we know there's going to be times of scattering. Jesus said it, John 16. So we know this time is unusual, but not unprecedented. Second thing we know, even in scattering, keep connecting as much as you can. So it's those two things that I want to look at this morning, and we begin with this. Here's the reality. There are times of scattering. John 16, 32, Jesus said it. An hour is coming, and now is, when you'll be scattered, each of you to your own home. Social isolation. Not new in the 21st century. Jesus said it, John 16, 32. And not only then was the church scattered, John 16, at uh, the arrest of Jesus, But it's happened several times in church history. Acts chapter 8, church scattered because of persecution in Jerusalem. Third century, uh, this weird combination of persecution and a pandemic created a church both scattered and isolated. 14th and 15th century, uh, the Black Plague had fallen upon Europe and the church was again forced into social isolation. In fact, Martin Luther wrote an essay which is surprisingly pointed to this exact morning, and he derides in that essay those who reject science. And this is exactly what he writes, and now I'm quoting Martin Luther directly, quote, use medicine, take potions which help you, fumigate your house and your yard and your street, shun persons and places wherever your neighbor does not need your presence or has recovered. Don't be in the presence of others. Isolate. Act like someone who wants to help put out the burning city. And then Luther insisted that people should take care not to infect or pollute others by keeping their distance. Wow, that's appropriate today. 
He wrote that 500 years ago, almost 600 years ago. The Counter-Reformation in Europe later on in the 18th century led to the persecution of the Protestants uh, by the Catholics, and so Protestants were isolated and scattered in the little uh, uh, village where I teach called Schladming in the Alps. There's a there's an, a high valley, a high Alpen valley above the river valley, river valley being Schladming. And during the uh, Counter-Reformation, the Protestants uh, were forbidden from gathering in Schladming. So in the middle of the night, they would hike up higher into the Alps and meet in a barn and bring their Bibles. But it's the only time they could meet. They were socially isolated. Spanish flu, 1918, social isolation. The church is shut down. So it's happened over and over and over and over again. This is nothing new, and we can learn from those who've gone before us. Uh, And so when this happens, here's something we learn. We learn that there's kind of two responses. There's a group over here really kind of mourning this loss of gathering in, in a kind of a double way. And then there's a group over here that kind of doesn't miss it at all. And I want to look at both of those and speak to both of those because both have things to learn here. There is, for many, a sense of double loss. And by double, I mean this. First of all, just at a very human level, most of us know that we're made for community. We're made for interdependency. We're made for human touch. We're made for eye contact. We're made for hugs. And all of that have been stripped away. Social connection and positive human touch activate the, the kind of the healthy part of your nervous system that reduces your heart rate, reduces your stress levels, uh, the hormones related to stress, enhances your immune system. When you, co- <clears throat> when you connect with people, it's healthier, actually. And uh, that's taken away. So here you are. You're already anxious about any number of things. I mean, there's a virus, and there's economic uncertainty, and there's political uncertainty, and there's fires torching the entire West Coast. So you're already anxious. And then on top of that anxiety, there's a stress that comes into your life simply because you can't connect with other people. I mean, we are, we're made for connection. I'm, I'm in this sanctuary right now. It, it's intended to seat, uh, I think, about 600 people. There's six of you in, in, on the first floor, and everything in me kind of wants to rip off your mask because, I, like, I want to see your face and, and connect. I want to connect, and it's hard, and all of us are feeling that, I think. At some level, all of us are feeling that. So there's, a, there's a, a neuroscientist at UCLA who is right now studying the anticipated effects of social distancing on the future and saying we are now laying the foundation for a host of new stress-related illnesses, uh, not related to the virus, but related to the fact that we can't touch each other. This is tough. And then in addition to just that human loss of connection that all of us feel, regardless of our faith, we are in a faith community, understand quite well that our faith is made for community. Our text this morning in Hebrews 10 says this, don't neglect gathering together. And yet, we are in one of those weird times when we can't gather together. So the norm is that we're made to gather, and as a result, when we don't gather, it feels unnatural. We did communion as a drive-through here a few weeks ago, and what was most poignant to me were the number of people who, like when they just pulled their car to the driveway of the parking lot of a church, 
that some of them have attended for 10 years or 20 years or longer, but they pull their car in the driveway and they kind of start to cry. And I go, how you doing? They go, oh, this is, I just, I just miss so much being together, right? And it's appropriate and good to not only miss being together, but to mourn the loss. Because not only does it feel unnatural, <clears throat> it is unnatural. So often uh, on a Sunday morning here in normal times, I'll preach an 8 a.m. service, then a 9.30 service, then an 11 service. And after the 8 a.m. service, I'll go get a cup of coffee in the adjacent building and I'll chat over there until after this 9.30 service has begun and I'll come back over here and there will still be people in the foyer of the building from the 8 a.m. service after the 9.30 service began. And what are they doing? They're praying for one another. They're catching up on their week. They're asking how they're doing. It's connection time. And so... There's a sense of feeling as if worship has been in a way sterilized right now because we're losing that human touch. We're losing that human connection time. And it's appropriate to mourn the loss because the reality is we're made for that at a human level. We're made for that in a very huge way. We're made for that as a spiritual level as well. Um, We are to be to one of the body of Christ. So on the one hand, there's a group over here mourning the loss. And it's appropriate to mourn the loss. On the other hand... There's a group over here, I think, and I know, in fact, there's a group over here. Now that this has become kind of a new normal, they're like this. I don't know that I ever, I don't really miss it. I'm okay with not meeting. Was any of this ever real? And kind of their faith is slipping away, in some cases anyway. Or people think their faith is slipping away because they're not gathering. And many of you write this group off as cynics. And I'm going to tell you, I don't write this group off as cynics. Because I know that within this group over here, there are people who understand that Christ isn't only found in community. And so, okay, I've lost my opportunity to be in community. I'll find Christ in solitude. I'll find Christ in creation. I'll find Christ in the text. And they become comfortable with these expressions of faith and In some cases, the danger is this. They become too comfortable because this isolation can actually fit their personality. And then it's like this. That's actually okay. You know what? Uh, I I actually prefer uh, Zoom church. I actually prefer being in my pajamas. I actually prefer being isolated and uh, finding Christ in text and creation and solitude and alternative to the worship. And the closest I'll ever get to other people is in a Zoom meeting. And I'm going to say to those people... Be careful. Uh, Don't let your individualism, which may be your value and certainly is a cultural value, don't let your individualism swallow up the reality that you are made for community. Community is messy. Community is hard. Community requires truth-telling and forgiveness and confession and accountability. And it's super valuable because that's how we're shaped. That's how Jesus shows up. So uh, some rightly understand that Christ isn't only found in community, but those people who are so comfortable in isolation desperately need community. And on the other hand, those who are so desperate for community need to accept this moment and learn what God has to say to them in a time of isolation. 
So as I try and apply these two princip- the principles, uh, applying these two groups, there's, a, there's just a couple of things I want to say. First of all, for everyone, no matter which spectrum you're in, embrace this as a time of transformation. Not meeting is not normal. So uh, if you're over here and you like isolation, understand, not me is not normal. We're called to meet. And not being able to be alone is also not normal. So if you're over here and you're mourning the loss of community and you don't know how you can function in this moment, understand that it's okay. You can meet God alone. A similar time of isolation occurred in the 1930s, and a pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, began an underground church, basically, an underground seminary, and he wrote a book about their life together as an underground seminary, and this is what he says, and I quote him directly here. He says, let the one who cannot be alone, that's this group over here, be, be, be aware of community. Like, don't get addicted to community because there's this rhythm in your life, or should be, of solitude and community. And let the one who is afraid of community be aware of being alone. Each by themselves have profound perils and pitfalls. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings. One who wants solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity and self-infatuation and despair. We both need adjustment. We all need adjustment. It's very interesting this summer... Uh, we began a new ministry at Bethany Community Church called Ancient Paths, and it's this um, kind of weekend event preceded by a couple of meetings for a group of people who commit to doing this together. So they share some of their life story, and they share where they're at, and then they gather on a Friday night or Saturday, and then we go up into the high country, and there's a time of solitude, and then we come back and we debrief the experience. And I was privileged to lead a group of uh, 10 men over 50 through this experience. And in the debrief, it was so interesting. I heard two uh, completely different things. One guy said, you know, I actually signed up for the solitude uh, and I was going to endure the community, but what, what I really wanted was just the time alone. I needed time alone. I was just like overwhelmed with people. I signed up for the time of solitude. And I, now I'm here to tell you, it's just the very end of the thing. He he goes, I'm here to tell you what fed my soul was you guys' community. Thank you. It was a super powerful moment. And then one of the next guys said, well, that's interesting. I signed up for the fellowship of the community and what fed my soul was the solitude. Not that you guys are bad guys, but I desperately needed to hear directly from God through creation. And, 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 and so here you are, <clears throat> One guy wanting community, needing solitude. Somebody else wanting solitude, needing community. I can totally identify. I tend to be uh, pretty comfortable hiking alone, backpacking alone, being alone. When I was planning sabbatical six years ago, my intent was to hike the PCT alone. And then through a series of events, I ended up, instead of hiking the Pacific Crest Trail alone, I ended up in Europe hiking hut to hut throughout Europe. And uh, my wife was with me the whole time. And in addition to that, Often we would stay in this room, uh, in Germany at least, in Austria, called the Lager, which is like this giant room. There'd be 30, we'd be sleeping with 30 people, right? People, little kids and people snoring and loud. And I ended up realizing, man, 
I'm so glad God redirected my path because what I needed was community. I needed to see Christ in others. Changed my life, changed my entire orientation. So understand here that this is a time of transformation for everybody. If you're too in love with solitude, grieve the loss of community and purpose to get back in as soon as you can. If, if you love community and you're grieving the solitude, learn to lean into the solitude and ask God to teach you to receive from uh, solitude and text and creation in ways you haven't before. I go back to this kind of order, disorder, reorder narrative that shows up all through the Bible. And I've said it many times, this is kind of the overarching theme. Things are okay, then bam, it's crazy. And then out of that craziness comes a new way. And, And, you know, you see this kind of plot line not only in the meta story of the Bible, but in individual stories and in nations and in cultures and in churches. And there's a couple of texts in the Bible that talk about how to interpret the time of disorder. One of my favorite ones is James chapter one, which says this, when you encounter trials, consider joy. And then it's, it says, look, know this, know that like your faith in the trial produces endurance. Now, like, I love that. I want you to note it with me. God is not saying, hey, put on endurance the way you put on a bathrobe or something. God is saying endurance produced in you is a byproduct of you step-by-step receiving and welcoming a trial that is in your life, saying, God, I want to learn. Where you want to teach me here, I want to learn. If you do that, the result of that will be endurance. And so I want to share with you an example of a young woman who I think did this very well, like receiving the trials well. Her name is Eddie Hellison, and she, her diaries are memorialized in a book entitled An Interrupted Life, Diaries of Eddie Hellison. Listen as she writes, exemplifying this welcoming of trials. This is 1942, Thursday morning, 10 o'clock. This morning early, I knelt down in the living room among all the breadcrumbs on the carpet from the discussion last night. And if if I should have to say aloud what I said in my prayers, it goes something like this. Oh Lord, this day, this day is, seems too heavy to me. So I pray that you will allow me to bear it well to its end. This day will probably be no heavier than any other day, but my strength to bear it does not feel great today. There's anxiety and the burden of wondering what this summons really means. She'd been actually summoned to a a German office and she hadn't gone yet, so she was anxious about that. Lord, help me not to waste a drop of my energy on fear and anxiety. Grant me all the resilience I need to bear this day. Meanwhile, German soldiers are drilling at the skating club, which is a way of saying uh, they're looking for Jews who are at the uh, ice skating club. So I prayed, God, do not let me dissipate my strength, not in the least little bit of strength, on useless hatred against these soldiers. Let me save my strength for better things. And then just a few days later, this is what she writes so beautifully. Last night, 8.45 p.m., I dropped in to see Liesel and Warner. Warner sat by the coffee grinder in the corner of the kitchen, his face staring out defiantly above his yellow star. In special honor of this night, he'd bought two pounds of real coffee. 
it must have cost him an entire week's wages at the least. And here's his wife shuffling about, making some biscuits, her white face, white from all that coughing. And I sat and I looked at this couple as we listened to Bach. And we flopped into armchairs. And with streaming black coffee before us, we reflected a bit on the Middle Ages and history and yellow stars and the Reich and psychology. In the years to come, children will be taught about the ghettos and the yellow stars and the camps and terror at school, and it'll make their hair stand on end. But parallel with textbook history is our history. A few comfortable chairs, bought with insurance money because all your possessions were wiped out of existence by bombs, a cup of expensive coffee, a few good friends, a happy atmosphere, a little philosophizing as Bach played on the gramophone, and life being beautiful and worthwhile all the same. Is your life beautiful and worthwhile? Absolutely. Do you believe it? I don't know. The first thing we can know is that there are times when we'll be scattered. And these will be hard times. And we're invited to lament the reality of the scattering and lean into what God has to teach us in isolation and embrace our context fully so that James 1 and the endurance that comes to us can transform us. The second reality beyond the reality of being scattered is this. Even in separation, connect as you're able. That's the second thing. It's very important. The book of Hebrews wasn't written in a time of pandemic, but it was written at a time of persecution. As we know from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 to 34, where the author says, hey, remember, right after you came to Christ, you endured lots of suffering. You were publicly exposed to insults and persecution. At other times, you were living in solidarity with those who were persecuted. You suffered with those in prison. Listen to this. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you know that you had a better and lasting possession in the kingdom of God. Wow. This reminds me again, there are seasons of profound disruption. And during such seasons, our calling is to recognize the danger, as Hebrews chapter 2 says, the danger of drifting away. And I love this drifting word picture because it's not a matter of you waking up one day and saying, you know what, God, I'm done. Oh, no. Some, like just through passive neglect, the foundation of intimacy with Jesus, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, begins to dry up. I've been on holiday, and um, so I haven't been down here in the city for over three weeks. And between this 9.30 service and the 8 a.m. service, where I preached earlier, I went back to the little place that I rent in the city to get a... Um, uh, to get a glass of water. And I started to cry because uh, there's a redwood tree in a, in a container. And it's, I'm not sure if it's dead, but it's almost dead. It's completely brown. And all the needles are falling off. And I've nurtured this tree for seven years in that container as a little bonsai redwood. And then I'm gone three weeks, and it's, I think it's, it may die. So I 
poured some water in there. I'm going to take it home with me. But it's the reminder to me of what's become my life verse in Ephesians chapter 3 for this season in which we find ourselves. In Ephesians 3, we're told to be rooted and grounded in love. And so as we think about how do we live into this season, even in separation, connecting as much as we're able, there's three things that I want to say to you. And the first is this. I exhort you in Jesus' name, hold unswervingly to the hope that you profess. That's verse 24 of Hebrews 10. Hold unswervingly. In other words, if I could say it this way, be rooted and grounded in love. Unlike my redwood tree, there's a giant tree in my backyard, and I'll show you a slide of it right now. We had an arborist come and look at uh, uh, our little forest, like a two-thirds of an acre where I live in the mountains. And uh, he looked at this one tree that you see the roots of here. He got this kind of sweet grin on his face, almost like infatuation. And he said, this is a beautiful tree. He said, it's over 200 years old. It, it was spared during the original clear cut of the property. And he said, look at those roots. And then we, you know, we looked at the roots and I took a picture of it. Because he says, those roots go deep down in and they receive all the nutrients out of the soil. And that's why this tree is so remarkably healthy. He says, never forget, everything begins with the roots. What a good word. Never forget, everything begins with the roots. Our, our calling is to receive identity in Christ and forgiveness and grace and calling and spiritual gifts and hope and joy and peace and patience, and confidence for the future. We receive all of it from Christ. So hold unswervingly to the hope that you profess. If you haven't joined us yet, I invite you to join uh, our Global Monastery Ministry. It's a Facebook page. And uh, the folks who are online as pastors will show you the link to that. This week, uh, we consider the theme of mindfulness. How do we live in this present moment? Not worried about the future, not worried about the past. How do we live in the present moment? But every week we consider a theme and you get a little um, uh, text every, every evening reminding you of the, uh, of the reading for the next day. And then from noon on, there's like this little five-minute uh, reading of Scripture and prayer made available. We need kind of this study receptivity of nourishment. That's what my dying redwood tree reminded. Three weeks of neglect and it's almost gone. So hold unswervingly, sign up for the monastery, develop habits of receiving from God. And then the same text, Hebrews 10 says this, consider how you can spur one another on to love and good deeds. How do you spur one another on? Well, it's more challenging in this environment than other environments. There's no question about it. But I will say this, in a less than perfect world, you always need to choose less than perfect tactics. So rather than focusing on the fact that we're not together, my encouragement to you is to jump in even deeper and use the less than perfect methods that are available, most of which are available through Zoom or some other format like that, to join in and actively spur one another on to love and good deeds. You can do this through small groups, as uh, was offered to us in the announcements. 
You can do this through our MOPS ministry, which meets on Tuesday night, through our Thursday Bible study, which meets on Thursday night, through connecting with families, as we've already heard about today. There are lots of venues and means whereby you can connect with others, so they are available, and if you're feeling isolated, remember, you need community, you're made for community, jump in. So that's the first thing. Uh, Hold unswervingly, then spur one another on to love and good deeds, And finally, verse 25 of Hebrews says this, find ways actively to encourage one another. Find ways to encourage one another. It says in this text, don't give up meeting together. And on the surface, of course, it seems that we have given up the habit of meeting together. As Martin Luther did 500 years ago, as the church in Germany did in the 1930s, as the church in Austria did in the 1880s, as happened in 1918, as happened in Acts 8, as happened in John 16, 32, where Jesus said, a time is coming and there are seasons, boom, you'll be scattered. When you're scattered, here's the thing, still find ways to encourage one another. What ways? Well, I would say the word encourage means to build up. So since this time of isolation has begun, I've taken them on myself to, I have a goal that every day, either through a phone call or an email, I want to encourage one person. I don't succeed every day, but that's my goal. And I will tell you, a simple word of encouragement to a person is like, often like water to a parched soul. Does that make sense? If I can say to you, this is how you've blessed me. If I can say to you, this is, I, know, know that you are on my mind. I'm praying for you. Any word of encouragement is feeding and building up the community of faith. And you have words of encouragement and a sphere of influence, people who love you. Go out today and encourage somebody. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to say that's what you need to do. Uh, Monday, I was on a hike. And on my way down, I stopped to call my wife on my phone. And when I finished the call, I put my phone back in my pocket, and apparently my pocket called somebody who then texted me and said, hey, I don't know what's going on, but your butt has called me four times in the last three days, and uh, so maybe we need to talk. And I took that as a sign, this is going to be my person to encourage today. And so when I, got, when I got done with my hike and <clears throat> got home, I called this guy on the phone. And we talked for 15 minutes. And it was nothing profound, but I caught up on some of his uh, uh, personal challenges. And uh, I just let him know how profound his impact had been on my life, how much I appreciate him. And I can tell you this, his word back to me was a word of gratitude for that simple word of encouragement. I don't think of myself as someone that anyone would appreciate receiving that from, if that, if that makes sense. So it's very easy for me to withdraw and say, oh, whatever, whatever, whatever. But I've learned over these months of practicing the discipline of encouragement, though imperfectly, every time I say a word of encouragement to someone, they're appreciative and it contributes to their transformation in Christ. So my encouraging word to you today is take up a ministry of encouragement. One person a day, just reach out and watch what happens. 
Two things we know. There are times of scattering, and even in scattering, we need to find ways to build one another up. Those are our realities that we see at this moment in history. It's not a moment unlike any other, but it's not a normal moment. And so in this not normal moment, may you find the grace to receive from your roots all that Christ has to give you in order that you might then be an encouragement to others. Please pray with me. Father, I want to thank you so much that we have the privilege of in unprecedented times, not losing sight of our identity and our calling to be people of hope. Even as we lament, we can continue to be people of hope. And I pray that you would equip us to do so, giving us clear steps to take. May your Holy Spirit speak to each one of us about a next step that we might take today, being rooted and grounded, joining a group, finding a ministry of encouragement, whatever is that one thing, Father, May we find our way forward and we'll thank you. We pray in Christ's name, amen. One way you can encourage others is if God has spoken to you about a next step today, let us know in the comments section on the live video feed on YouTube or on Facebook or however else you're watching. We will continue to encourage each other that we might shine as light. Let's worship together.